Having already healed an enemy general, blinded an entire army, fed multiple prophets with one small meal, and brought a young boy back to life, it's hard to imagine what Elisha might do next, let alone guess how he might trump all his previous miracles. What happens next is an absolute showstopper. The scope, scale and sheer imagination of the miracle is one of the Bible's true gems. And, as I mentioned in the previous episode, it's possibly my favourite story in the entire book. A city on the edge of utter annihilation and a small band of leprous beggars are about to see one of the most unexpected turnarounds ever committed to print. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 86, The Woman Who Ate Her Son. Hello Bible fans, thanks for jumping back on the bus. We're on a slow moving road trip through all 66 books of the Bible and we've just pulled up in the second book of Kings, a book written down some two and a half thousand years ago and which chronicles the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah. If you missed the last few episodes, Israel split in two under Solomon's son Rehoboam. Israel to the north has suffered a number of near-pagan kings who have turned their backs on God, while Judah to the south has just about kept the truck on the road, ensuring that a direct descendant of Israel's golden king David remains on the throne. One thing I should mention before we get underway, if you're looking for a reflection or even a Bible study, this is not it. I don't assume that you are a believer, I simply treat the Bible as a book and leave listeners to make their own minds up as to whether any of it is true or not. My belief is that the Bible is for everyone, not just religious people. Last thing, all measurements are in miles, feet and inches, so if you're not familiar with these, I've put the metric conversions in the notes. Right, let's head to Samaria. between Israel and its neighbour Aram doesn't last, and eventually Aram's king Ben-Hadad sets his sight on Israel's capital. Ben-Hadad's army besieges the city of Samaria for so long that famine sets in, which in turn has an effect on the economy. For those of you unfamiliar with sieges, this is where an army encircles a city and either waits for the people within the city walls to starve, or bombards those walls to break in and fight. It's a slow but effective way to grab territory as the people within the walls slowly starve and thirst to death. The cost of food in Samaria skyrockets to the point where a relatively undesirable horse's head sells for the equivalent of £530 in today's money and three and a half ounces of the kind of seed pods commonly used as animal food sell for £33. That's 670 US dollars or a thousand Australian for the horse's head and 42 American dollars or 62 Australian for a handful of seed pods. A starving woman accosts Israel's King Joram, begging for help, but there is nothing he can do for her. If God can't help her, how can he, he asks. 
he has no control over the lack of wine and flour in his city. According to the woman's awful story, people in the besieged citadel have resorted to cannibalism. Another mother asked her to cook up her son so they could both eat, and, unbelievably, they cooked the child. The next day, the bereaved woman asked her friend to cook her own son so that they could both eat, but the mother managed to hide the boy away. The assumption is that the children who were eaten have already died from starvation or malnutrition during the siege. Repulsed at what he is hearing, Joram tears his robes. Under the ripped finery, the king is wearing sackcloth, suggesting penitence to God. Yet rather than interpret the siege's punishment for worshipping idols, Joram swears that he will kill the prophet Elisha, as if the siege is somehow his fault, or that the holy man has the power to stop it and has failed to do so. Elisha appears to wield considerable power in the city. He is holding some kind of meeting with Samaria's leaders in his home when his divine radar detects that trouble is on its way. The prophet announces to the others that Joram is sending someone to cut his head off and urges them to hold the door shut against the assassin. Joram won't be far behind, he says, and, sure enough, there is a knock on the door. The men can no doubt see both the messenger and the king from a vantage point in the house. From outside, Joram explains his actions. He feels that the disaster is God's doing and that he has lost patience with him. As God's prophet, Joram sees Elisha as being on the wrong side of history as far as Israel's national security is concerned. This is where the show begins. Elisha passes on some information which he tells the king is from God. Food prices in the city will plummet by the end of the day. High-grade flour will go for as little as £6.60 for £12 in Samaria, with twice the amount of barley going for the same price. That's $8.25 US, or just over $12 Australian for a small sackful. This is a staggering price drop, and unimaginable at a time of such extreme shortage. One of Joram's attendants refuses to believe that such a thing might happen. Even if heaven's floodgates open releasing a deluge, such a sudden change in Samaria's economy is impossible, he says. Elisha thumbs his nose at impossible and assures the man that he will be an eyewitness to these events, even though he won't benefit from any of the dramatically reduced prices himself. Interestingly, the notion of heaven's floodgates is a peculiarly Old Testament one. The Old Testament cosmos has a flat earth with a dome over the top of it, the heavens. Above this dome is a layer of water, referred to in the book of Genesis as the water above the earth. It is the release of this water the ancients believed caused Noah's flood. Bible literalists still hold to this Old Testament version of the makeup of the universe. The Bible is all true, they say. However, many Christians today juggle their religious belief with a more modern, scientific version of the cosmos, and the church appears broad enough to accommodate both groups. If things are bleak inside the city of Samaria, for four men suffering from leprosy, life outside is every bit as hopeless. 
Leprosy in the ancient Near East covers a number of skin complaints and many people recover relatively quickly. While they are sick, they must live in an area which the Bible describes as outside the camp as they are considered ritually unclean. The sense with these men though is that their condition is chronic and ongoing. With nothing but death to look forward to should they enter Samaria, these desperate wandering invalids huddle outside the city gates and put their heads together to discuss their options. The men know full well that everyone inside Samaria risks dying of starvation, disease or military attack from the Aramean troops who are besieging the citadel. To them, entering the city appears to be a suicide mission. If they remain where they are, they will starve, and so the least worst option is to make their luck in the Aramean camp. The thinking is that the Arameans might well kill them, but the other two alternatives will result in certain death. As such, they make the executive decision to walk up to the Arameans and surrender in the hope that they will not only be spared, but that someone might feed them. These men are four of the most pitiful and pathetic characters in the Bible. They are almost devoid of hope, which makes what happens next all the more extraordinary. Because what follows is one of the most emphatic military defeats in the Bible. It really is hard to imagine a fighting force weaker than a small band of starving beggars suffering from an incurable skin disease. But if there's one constant in the Bible, it's that the least expected people achieve the most unexpected outcomes, a phenomenon which the book puts down to God's intervention. As evening sets in, the men make their way to Ben-Hadad's encampment, but to their surprise, no one is home. The Arameans have no other enemy nearby to fight them, and so the men have no explanation as to why the army camp has become a 9th century BC version of the Marie Celeste. The writer then explains what has just happened. Instead of hearing the shuffling footsteps of four sick men, God intervened so that the Arameans heard the rushing of hooves, the sound of chariots and the noise of a great army. Believing that Israel had hired Hittite and Egyptian mercenaries to come and help break the siege, the Arameans lost their collective mojo and ran for their lives, leaving all their equipment, horses and other possessions behind. In a surreal scene, the lepers wander around the empty camp, poking around in a tent where they find a smorgasbord of untouched food and drink which they help themselves to. Seeing some gold, silver and clothing, the men's plan A is to take the hall and hide it for later. They wander into another tent which they also loot before coming to their senses. It's time for a new plan A. The men now decide that what they are doing is not only wrong, they are keeping good news to themselves. It is far better for them to report back to Samaria than to be discovered here with pockets as full as their bellies, and so they make a beeline for the royal palace. By now it is night time, but once Samaria's gatekeepers hear the men's story, news of the vacated camp spreads quickly. 
Joram gets up and assumes that abandoning camp is a trick by the Arameans. They know that the Samaritans are starving and are trying to entice them out, waiting to spring an ambush before capturing them and entering their city. An advisor to the king suggests that they ready the five horses left alive in the city and send out a scouting party. If the men are killed, then it's no worse than the inevitable death that they all face by remaining in Samaria. With nothing to lose, they hitch chariots to a couple of horses and send messengers out in search of the Aramean army. The panic-stricken Arameans have left a trail of possessions in their wake, jettisoned as soldiers fled in terror from the four lepers who they thought were a coalition army. The outriders return with the news that the siege really is over, and the gleeful Samaritans exit their city to plunder the abandoned war tents. Here they find so much food that prices plummet, making the cost of flour and barley exactly the same as those predicted by Elisha. The royal attendant who poo-pooed the prophet's suggestion that this might happen is stationed at the city gate when the news arrives, and in the stampede that ensues as people rush out of the city and into the Aramean camp, he is trampled to death. Elisha's promise that he will not personally benefit from the lower food prices has come true, and one of the Bible's most fabulously choreographed miracles is complete. Side note, medieval rabbis who commentate on Old Testament texts suggest that the lepers might be Gehazi and his sons. Flip back to the last episode to see how Elisha's servant Gehazi is punished for lining his own pockets by being inflicted with the disease. And while we're in slightly off-topic fun fact zone, it's worth pointing out that, with 30 miracles to his name, Elisha is the Bible's third greatest miracle worker. Statisticians have counted 34 for Jesus and an astonishing 42 for the Bible's king of miracles, Moses. The narrative now swings away from war and sieges and back to the world of ordinary people living out their lives in Old Testament Israel. Elisha clearly owes a debt of gratitude to the family who has looked after him and provided free bed and board for him for so much of his ministry. So, when he learns via his heavenly radar that a seven-year famine is imminent, he tells his benefactor in Shunam that she and her loved ones should leave Israel as soon as possible. Thanks to this heads up, the woman is able to take her family west to live among the coastal Philistines. After seven years, however, she returns to find that her property has found itself in the hands of other people. Clearly an influential enough person to gain an audience with the king, she approaches Joram to see if he can help her regain ownership of her house and land. The woman shows up at an opportune time. The king is talking with Gehazi. He has summoned him to hear all about Elisha's miracles. Why he is so interested in the works and deeds of the prophet, readers are not told, nor whether Elisha's former servant has recovered or been reinstated. It is just as Gehazi is describing Elisha's ability to bring people back to life that the woman arrives at the royal palace. It's perfect timing, as Gehazi was present during her son's miraculous revival. Joram now wants to hear a blow-by-blow -blow account of the miracle, direct from the source, and the woman regales him with Elisha's incredible efforts on the day that her son died. 
Impressed, the king assigns an official to the woman's case and orders him to not only make sure that her property is restored, but that she is compensated for seven years' lack of income from her estate. Elisha still has unfinished business to attend to in Aram. He needs to anoint Hazael, the nation's next king. Hardcore listeners to this podcast will remember that when Elisha fled the fury of Israel's queen Jezebel after humiliating her and her prophets, he believed he heard God giving him a list of chores, one of which was to anoint a man named Hazael as king of Aram. Aram is a pagan nation, so why a prophet should be intervening in its royal succession, readers are not told. When the prophet arrives in Aram's capital city of Damascus, Ben-Hadad is sick. He hears that Israel's holy man is in town and, clearly hoping that Elisha can sway the outcome of his illness, he sends his trusted adviser, Hazael, to greet him. Thanks to Gehazi's mercenary behaviour earlier, the word is no doubt out that Elisha is open to gifts, and so Ben-Hadad loads up 40 camels with the finest produce that Damascus has to offer, and sends them with Hazael to meet the prophet. It's a strange encounter. The king wants to know if he will recover from his illness, but Elisha's message to Hazael appears contradictory. Hazael should tell the king that he will get better, Elisha says, even though Ben-Hadad will die. As if this weren't confusing enough, the prophet then eyeballs Hazael until the advisor becomes embarrassed. To top off the weirdness of the encounter, Elisha bursts into tears. Hazael asks Elisha why he is weeping, and the sense is that he knows already. The long stare suggests that the prophet is reading Hazael's thoughts and realises that he is already plotting against Ben-Hadad. Elisha's answer is that he is distressed at all the harm that Hazael will one day wreak against his beloved Israel. He will burn cities, slay men with swords, dash children to the ground and rip open the bellies of pregnant women, he says. Feigning humility and comparing himself to a mere dog, Hazael asks the prophet how someone as lowly as him could accomplish such slaughter. The answer is simple. Hazael is told that God has assured him that he will be Aram's next king. The meeting over, Hazael returns to his king, assuring him that he will recover. However, the next day, he soaks a thick cloth in water and holds it over Ben-Hadad's face until the king either drowns or suffocates, leaving Hazael to take over as Aram's leader. With this act of regicide in the bag, the second book of Kings temporarily leaves Elisha to shine a light on what is happening in the kingdom to the south. It seems that in both nations God has been put on a back burner. This godlessness comes at a price. This is the Bible after all, and the overriding assumption is that God is the supreme deity, and so falling foul of him is at the very least a bad career move. What happens next is staggering even by Old Testament standards. Two rulers of prominent Near Eastern nations die on the same day. These are extraordinary times and the rise of Israel's single godly king is next.
Viable is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. If you have any feedback or questions, please email contact at holybuyable.com. I'll spell that W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. Or you can chat to us on X. Simply search Holy Buyable Podcast. Don't forget to tell family or friends if you like what you hear. And if you like reading, you can find Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis to Deuteronomy on Amazon. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.